Hey everyone, it's Javier. It's that time of year where we have to make everything a little bit more merry and bright and add a touch of con artists there too. Today I want to play you one of my favorite Christmas episodes that we've aired on this show. It's with my friend Brian Earl. Brian Earl is the host of the Christmas Past podcast and this is the time of year you need to listen to that podcast just to get into the spirit. Brian talks about the backstory of Christmas trees and the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree and all topics related to Christmas, stories that you probably don't even know about. And this year is extra special because Brian Earl just came out with his book, Christmas Past the Book. I already ordered my copy. When it comes to Christmas, Brian Earl is your guy. But a couple of years ago, we decided to team up and you know, he's the Christmas guy, I'm the con artist guy. And we found the Venn diagram where we actually found a Christmas con artist story. And that's what I want to play for you tonight. Now, before I play that episode, I want to remind you that come January, this show, Pretend, is going guns a-blazing. I mean, I have all 10 episodes of the next season ready to go. So if you're an Apple Podcast subscriber or a Patreon subscriber, watch out because... Any day now, I'm going to drop the entire season of my Cyberstalker story that's coming out, and it, it is nuts. So stay tuned, make sure to subscribe so that you could be the first one to listen to the entire series. All right, here we go. Let's play the episode. And I hope each and every one of you have a happy holidays and some relaxing time off. Brian, you and I have been podcast friends for a long time mm -hmm. now, and I love Christmas past podcasts. Every time it starts getting cold outside and I, I'm getting in the Christmas spirit, I turn on Christmas past uh -huh. podcasts and everything is perfect. But you and I were talking earlier this year, and you were telling me about this project you were working on, and I never thought that our two shows would ever cross paths. Can... Can you tell me about the project you're working on? What is it that you're working on? Well, let me tell you a Christmas story, and it's probably one that you've never heard before. Most people haven't, even though it's one that's from our fairly recent history. This is a story that involves Santa Claus and charity and Christmas spirit, so we're off to a good start so far. But what if I also told you that it involved U.S. Secret Service agents and U.S. presidents? And what if I told you that it involved blackmail schemes and fraudulent charities? What if I told you that it also involved an art thief and Boy Scouts who carried guns? And what if I told you that wasn't even the weirdest part of all of this? 
this is the story that I'm working on. And this is a story that I think more people should know about because it is as interesting as it is juicy. And there are just lots of little twists and turns along the way. But, you know, I have a podcast called Pretend, and it's usually it's about people pretending to be someone else. It's about con artists, greed, corruption, and deception. Is there any of that in this story? Well, like any good Christmas story, it has Christmas at its core, but it answers the central question, what happens when a con artist decides that he'd like to save Christmas? So even con artists get the Christmas spirit sometimes, but when they evoke their charitable natures, it doesn't always go as as according to plan. All right, so where do we start? Take me back to the beginning. When does this story take place? It's sort of hard to say where it really begins because there is where the events of the story begin in the early 20th century, but we have to go back a little further than that to set the scene. So starting in perhaps around the 1880s is when we have the first records of Santa Claus and children corresponding through the mail. But Brian tells me there's a twist. It's not children writing to Santa Claus, but rather the other way around. Parents would write to their children in the voice of Santa Claus. He would send letters to remind them to be good to their siblings, to do their homework, to clean their rooms. What happened along the way within about 20 years in in the U.S. was that there was an overhaul of the postal system. Having a mailbox at your house is actually a very new thing. It used to be that you had to go to the post office to send and receive mail. But door-to-door delivery was happening around the turn of the 20th century. And this is pretty magical. This story that we're talking about today takes place in New York around 1910. Once the postal system got overhauled and seeing the postman arrive at your house became more a part of everyday life for more and more people, that's when kids got the idea that, hey, if Santa Claus can write to me, maybe I can write back to Santa Claus. The idea of sending letters to Santa seems like it's been around as long as Christmas has, but of course it can only be as old as an efficient postal service is. So this is something that's very, very new. Like a lot of the traditions we celebrate, I think most people would be surprised to find out how new they really are. We have these Christmas traditions, but, you know, Christmas traditions change all the time. And we're talking about over 100 years now. Mm -hmm. What was Christmas like in the early 1900s? This is when the Christmas that we celebrate today came into its own, which is another surprising thing for most people. The way that we celebrate Christmas now, people from five or six generations ago would look at it and they would barely recognize it. The idea that every house has a Christmas tree, that's only from about the 1870s. Christmas itself wasn't even a federal holiday until 1870. And throughout most of the 19th century, businesses would be open. I mean, um, even earlier than that, famously, George Washington would work on Christmas Day. Schools would be open. So the whole notion of Christmas as this major and ubiquitous cultural celebration is really only a little more than a century old. It's also true that around this time, things like a visit from St. Nicholas and some of the popular imagery around Santa Claus was only a couple decades old. And still, most people hadn't seen that. A commonly held vision of what Santa Claus is and does and what he looks like and what he sounds like, most people just didn't have that until around the turn of the century. There were local customs and legends, but this sort of one unified, standardized vision of Santa Claus and how he works was really around the turn of the 20th century, and and specifically in America, and more specifically than that, in New York City. So so the other important thing to understand is the length of the Christmas season. 
The idea of Christmas being the five weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas really came right around this time in the early 20th century, and it was mostly propagated by retailers. So kids were seeing more of Santa. They were seeing more of the mailman. They were receiving letters from Santa Claus. And so it didn't take much ingenuity, really, for them to decide, well, if Santa can write to me, I can write to Santa. But here's the problem. Where do you send a letter to Santa Claus? And nowadays, we would say the North Pole. But Brian reminded me that the North Pole is actually kind of new, too. We didn't settle on the idea of the North Pole until a couple decades into the 20th century. Before that, kids would write all kinds of things on these letters, like on the other side of the moon or Ice Street or Ice Castle House or pretty much just making up whatever they want. And while that's adorable and everything, it was a major infrastructural problem. Because once it's in the postal system, it is federal property. And what are you supposed to do with a letter like that? Well, let me ask you, Brian, where do letters to Santa go? Well, for a while, they didn't really know what to do. There was an official postal protocol that when you have a letter, in the, once it's in the system, you have to try to get it somewhere. If you cannot deliver it, it goes to what's called the dead letter office. And in the dead letter office, again, they, they make another attempt to get it delivered. But if once they realize that it cannot be delivered, it's destroyed. Brian was telling me that some of these kids who were writing these letters weren't asking for toys. They were asking for basic things like food. There was one child who wrote a letter asking for a glass eye. There was one just asking for, for basic things for his mother because they didn't have enough to eat. This was... A lot of the letters children were writing were from really poor children hoping against hope for some kind of miracle of Christmas. And so the postal workers said, I, we can't throw these away. I know the rules say that we have to do this, but I just can't bring myself to do that. So the post offices at the local level, each branch kind of just improvised. They would just come up with their own approach. Some of them would just say to anyone in town, hey, if you want to come and, and take one of these letters and answer it, assuming there's a return address on it, maybe you could help this kid out. Oftentimes they were published in the newspapers. And again, this was you know something you'd never see today, but the letter would be published along with the child's address. And there would be a, a little note from the editor saying, my goodness, look at this poor child. Shouldn't somebody respond to this? Well, this couldn't go on forever. It was Christmas season, and who's going to say no to something charitable like this? But it was technically breaking the rules, so the post office adopted a new policy. For the month of December, any church group or any charity or any individual could answer one or more of these letters. The problem was, there weren't a lot of takers. People liked reading about this in the paper. People liked knowing that this was going on, but not a lot of people really wanted to get involved. Man, that is so sad. So all these kids are writing letters, and they're just piling up, and nobody's answering them? So even the newspapers were saying Santa Claus is a tardy saint because nobody wants to come help these, these poor, desperate children. So in order to solve this problem... Someone was going to have to come along and really come up with an efficient system that could handle all these letters at a massive scale. And so in 1914, along came a man by the name of John Duval Gluck. When we come back, we'll meet John Gluck, the Santa Claus man.
So you now just introduced us to John Gluck. He, John Gluck learns about all these letters that are piling up in the post office, and they're all unread, and they're addressed to Santa Claus. What does he do with these letters? It's really interesting to think now uh, how ambitious and maybe how, um, I don't know what the word is, how bold it would be for someone to come along and think they can solve this problem. The thing you need to know about Gluck is that he's always been a hustler. John Gluck was a customs agent. He was in his mid-30s, recently divorced, and lived in a small apartment in the back of a restaurant that his friend owned. Working his customs job, you get the feeling that maybe it wasn't what he wanted to do with his life. He always wanted something more. He was always involved in these little side projects and side hustles. There was a time where he was promoting a product called window cribs, which unfortunately are exactly what they sound like. They were cribs meant to be uh, mounted into windows in New York City apartments that you can put your child in them so they can get some fresh air, presumably. Um, He was always doing things like that. And so you have to understand about Gluck that everything he does, there's always some ulterior motive. It's really hard to piece apart where he was coming from. You do get the sense he loved Christmas. He was actually born on Christmas Day. Uh, He loved children, even though he didn't have any. But nonetheless, when he heard that there was a problem like this, you really get the sense that he wanted to come along and try to solve it because it was yet another chance for him to break out of his humdrum customs agency work and make a name for himself and become a somebody. He sees this opportunity, and we know he's a hustler, like the way you described him. I mean, he sounds like a hustler, but he also sounds like he's trying to do a good thing. I mean, it sounds like he's been taken by like the Christmas spirit. Do you think that maybe he that he has good intentions? He has good intentions mixed with ulterior motives. There is a concept that philosophers refer to as enlightened self-interest, the notion that I can do well for myself by doing good for others. So he was the kind of person who, on the one hand, probably saw this as just a nice thing to do, but also understood that this was his ticket to fame and fortune. Gluck sees this opportunity to help these kids. These Santa letters are piling up. They're going unanswered. But what is his solution to this problem? So his idea was actually kind of genius in a lot of ways, where he didn't want to start a charity. Because if, you're, if you have a charity, there are going to be all kinds of regulations and rules that you have to follow. So what Gluck did is bypassed all of that and said, I'm not starting a charity. I'm not collecting money. I'm not giving anything out. All I'm going to do is act as a clearinghouse. I'm going to take all of the letters and I'm going to match them to donors who are willing to help out. And you might say, well, if the post office couldn't do this and if the letters have been piling up, how is this one guy able to do it? He was also willing to send out these letters to people all around the city, namely wealthy and powerful people, asking them if they would like to answer a letter or two. So you'd have people like the Vanderbilts or the uh, the Sachs family donating, um, you know, little honorariums for things like postage and stationery. You'd have uh, the Pulitzer family was getting involved. So a lot of these big New York names, these old money names, were really only too happy to take part in, in a way large or small. It's almost very innovative what he's done. He's matching the donor with the person in need, right? It was really innovative on a couple of levels because, number one, it allowed him to fly under the radar. 
he was untouchable by any charity watchdog organization because he wasn't a charity. He's just a clearinghouse, a middleman. The other innovation was in the way that he devised a system. This was really what allowed him to get the gig. He went to the post office uh, with a proposal for, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not coming to take a handful of the letters. I don't want to take one or two letters. All those letters piling up, I'll take all of them, 100% of them, you can deliver to me and I'm going to get this taken care of. And he did. Wow. I mean, that sounds amazing, except I already see the flaw in this plan because, I mean, think about it, Brian. That has to be a tall ask. Each household probably has one or two kids, mm -hmm. right? And we're talking about New York City. We're not talking about Topeka, Kansas here. How many kids are in New York City? I mean, how could he possibly, one man, play Santa Claus in New York City? Well, when he started out, he was able to recruit a, vol a handful of volunteers. So technically, he was the orchestrator and he had a, it was more than just him. Nonetheless, he came up with a, a system that was almost like a flow chart for intaking these letters. So in the first place, the post office would deliver bags of letters, kind of like in that scene on Miracle on 34th Street, just literal canvas bags overflowing with children's letters to Santa Claus. Brian says that the first thing they wanted to do was to look at the letter and see, is this really a letter to Santa Claus? Because believe it or not, there were really people in New York City with the last name Kringle and Claus. Uh, so the first thing you want to do is say, should I actually be even looking at this letter? If not, just send it back. All right, so you laid out this plan and it sounds really efficient and really well thought out, but I mean, how long could he possibly keep this up? He had to scale at some point, right? He did, but you would be surprised at what he was able to get done in just uh, one that one season. So in the first season, they were able to get 17,000 children's letters to Santa Claus answered which is, you know, when you do the math throughout the month of December, it's, it's, it's almost like 800 and something a day, which is just bonkers. It, it boggles the mind. It almost seems like the kind of thing that it would be hard to imagine that happening today. Brian tells me that people were tripping over themselves wanting to get involved because, well, it would reflect well on them and because they were getting swept up by the Christmas spirit. Uh, Gluck through his, his savvy, uh, knowing how to work the media, was really making sure that almost anything that they did was, was covered in the newspaper. And so this is where we start to get into the story starting to take a little bit of a turn, where Gluck would make sure that almost any opportunity to get some positive press would, would make it into the papers. One of the publicity stunts that Gluck pulled was copying the Red Cross. What the Red Cross would do every year was hire a prominent artist to paint something, and that painting would get used to create a commemorative stamp. Well, Gluck wanted to do something like that too, so they hired an artist. The artist made a painting and they made stamps. The Red Cross did not like this at all. They actually did a cease and desist order. They, they forced them to stop. But in the meantime, the artists would donate the painting. So not only did they have the stamp, but they would also have the painting that they would put on display for anyone to see. Well, one day when no one was looking, apparently someone came along and stole the painting. And there was a search for it and it made the papers and it was a big thing. And then one day the, the 
painting just returned to their offices with a note saying, oh, you know, my goodness, I, I realize how wrong I've been. I'm so sorry. I feel terrible about this. Here's your painting back. And of course, that made it into the papers too. And there was some suspicion at the time whether the whole thing was orchestrated as yet another opportunity for Gluck to keep himself relevant, to keep the Santa Claus Association in the papers, and just basically manufacture a feel-good story for the end of the holiday season. So he knew how to stay relevant. He knew how to stay in the news. Exactly. So Brian, this concept that Gluck came up with is so innovative and so brilliant because, because it's not a charity like you described. He's really just matching a donor to a recipient of a gift. I mean, he's matching someone who wants to donate a gift to a kid who wants to receive a gift. It's brilliant. Yeah, and it would have worked even better if more people understood how it was supposed to work. So for all of the success they had with all of their matchmaking, some people didn't quite understand the concept and they wanted to get involved. But rather than agreeing to answer a child's letter to Santa Claus, what they would do is start sending gifts directly to the Santa Claus Association itself saying, here, send this to wherever it can be useful. Wait. That's crazy because uh, that's not what this charity is supposed to do. So what happens now? Do they just get bombarded with gifts? Where do they store all this stuff? Yeah. So in that first season, it was still stored at the back office of that restaurant where they were using as their central base of operation. And they had a real problem on their hands, one that they just were not equipped for. In the first place, it's just a couple days before Christmas and they're busy enough doing their matchmaking. Brian tells me that what they really needed were people. And they got some. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, the an organization called the United States Boy Scout said that the Boy Scouts can become volunteers. They can help deliver these gifts. Wait, wait. The United States Boy Scouts? Don't you mean the Boy Scouts of America? No, but we're going to be hearing from them too in this story. The United States Boy Scout is a group that's no longer around, and it was started around the same time as the Boy Scouts of America. So the Boy Scouts of America was founded by a newspaper publisher. Well, there was another newspaper publisher who we've all heard of, a guy named William Randolph Hearst, who said, well, uh, you know, if my rival newspaper publisher can create a scouting organization, so can I. So shortly after that, he created one that it had a different name first, and then it eventually became the United States Boy Scout. No S at the end, just the United States Boy Scout. And they were very similar. They had a similar charter. They did similar things. There was one key difference, however, which was that Hearst's organization, the United States Boy Scout, actually gave their scouts guns. These are seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids who received a service rifle as part of their membership in the United States Boy Scout. In theory, it was for target practice. They'd go out into the woods on scouting expeditions and, and do some target shooting. The only problem is give a kid a gun and guess what happens sometimes. Like in a movie, you know, if you introduce a gun, it, you know it's going to go off, right? So, wow, that's crazy. So you're saying that the big difference here between the Boy Scouts of America the ones that we know of today, and the United States Boy Scouts, is that 
these Boy Scouts actually carried weapons. That was one of the big differences. Uh, we think of the Boy Scouts of America today as, you know, you, you learn how to tie some knots, you learn how to build a fire in the woods. It's more like the sort of frontier skills, whereas uh, the United States Boy Scout was much more, they would have these sort of proto-military parade style events and things like that. And yes, among other things, their kids carried guns. That's crazy. So, so now these kids are getting involved in the organization. And what exactly are they doing? Well, we should back up and say the reason they got involved was, like you said, um, when you introduce a gun, it has to go off. And that actually, unfortunately, is, is what did happen. Uh, one of the scouts got into an argument with another child, ended up shooting and killing that child. Uh, this was around, I think, 1914 that this happened. Oh, wow. So obviously, it's a tragedy. And there is a, a big basic safety problem. And needless to say, they did away with the guns after that. But also... In the meantime, there was a public relations problem with this group. There was an image problem. They really needed to untarnish their image if they were to survive as a group. So one of the things they tried to do was align themselves with the Santa Claus Association, saying, we, we can help. We can do something. This will be a nice little PR thing for us. You know, if you're getting any positive attention, we would like to be able to latch on to that. And so what we can offer you is we can help deliver some of these packages. So Gluck is kind of adjusting his business model, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. because this is not a charity, but he's kind of sort of operating it like a charity. Mm -hmm. People are sending him gifts now. He has to figure out a way to deploy these gifts. He teams up with the United States Boy Scouts. But I have to imagine this has to consume a lot of his time. And he can't be making a lot of money out of this. How does John Gluck make a living? The thing is, again, they're, they're not a charity. They don't have any operating costs. It's an all-volunteer workforce. They are donated office space. People do donate a small amount of money for things like postage and um, stationery. However, that didn't stop John Gluck from telling people that they needed money. And that is one of the ways that the Santa Claus Association starts to become it starts to look less like a philanthropic or charitable style organization and starts to look a little bit more like a conduit for John Gluck to become rich and famous. Hmm. And so how so? How, how does he turn this into a more profitable venture for himself? Well, maybe one of the first times that we see this in action is he approaches a Broadway producer uh, and says, hey, how about we do a fundraiser? You know, how about it's true that you donate all of the ticket sales from one night of one of your performances to the Santa Claus Association? Because, look, I'm facing debt. Uh, the Santa Claus Association might have to shut down. It's not really able to sustain itself. None of this is true, by the way. John Gluck didn't really need to raise money at all, but that didn't stop him from trying. This was a pattern that Gluck would do again and again. He would continue to come up with figures for saying, oh, well, we need this much for office space, even though office space was donated. We need this much for um, postage and, and things like that, even though all those costs were already covered. So again and again, he would find ways to tell people that he needed money, even though he really didn't. Did anybody ever kind of get a sense that maybe something's up, that maybe this guy isn't the jolly old fella that he presented himself to be? Oh, sure. Yeah, we can start on that in any number of ways. There was, first of all, a group called the Charity Organization Society in, in New York City, and they were a charity watchdog group. They just made sure that any charities were above board. 
They didn't like any of this from the start. Uh, even before Gluck came along, this whole notion of releasing letters from the post office to anyone who wanted to answer them, the Charity Organization Society tried to shut that down. And for a while, they were actually successful. But then the post office decided to release the letters again because they got a new postal commissioner. So they tried to put the kibosh on it. And then there were other groups like other charity watchdog organizations that were trying to look into it. And again, the problem was there just wasn't enough hard evidence of wrongdoing. They were just sneaking suspicions that, hey, this doesn't look quite right. This feels a little shady. We get the sense that there's more money coming in than there is going out. We are highly suspicious that this isn't quite what it seems to be. But there was really nothing they could hang on on Gluck. He must have been feeling the heat at this point, right? I mean, he had to know that people were onto him. What did he do as a reaction to some of this criticism? Gluck really knew how to work the media. And so, you know, nowadays we're familiar with the notion of, you know, a trial in the court of public opinion. This was something new around then. And Gluck was one of those people who understood that, that if I can convince enough members of the public that this is true, that my side is, is real, then I can muster up the support to continue operating as I've been operating. Not only that, but it was also still true that he was untouchable. He wasn't a charity. He didn't have to follow any charity's rules. And even if that were true, there just wasn't enough of a paper trail to connect any of his activity to something that you could prosecute. Today's episode is supported by a brand new podcast from Wondery and the Los Angeles Times called Detective Trap. I don't know about you, but I personally love true crime podcasts with real law enforcement professionals who do things a little differently. This story is about a veteran detective named Jalissa Trap. She's not your typical cop. In fact, I bet her style is guided more by her gut than anything she's ever learned at the Academy. The podcast named after her, Detective Trap, takes a look back at the case which defined her career. It's the story of three women who disappeared in Santa Ana, California, without a trace. Hear how this unconventional detective brought justice her own way. Subscribe to Detective Trap on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to right now. You can also find the link in the episode notes. So you've painted this picture of this man who started this charitable organization during the holidays and, uh, you know, a lot of good came out of it. But you've also painted this picture of this man who has a lot of conflict of interest. What other things have led you to believe that John Gluck was in it for himself? Well, one of the opportunities that came out of that first season working with the United States Boy Scout was that the chief scout of that organization, a guy named Edwin McAlpin, really liked the cut of uh, John Gluck's jib, right? So I really, you, you're a hustler, you know how to get things done, you know how to work the media. Why don't you come on and become an official fundraiser at the United States Boy Scout? The more the United States Boy Scout worked for John Gluck for free, the more positive attention they get, the more money they're able to raise in their fundraising. And since John Gluck is in charge of their fundraising, well, that means he gets a cut of their fundraising money. Sounds like a pretty clear conflict of interest to me. Right, so it's a very, very clear conflict that he really cannot represent them while also accepting free labor, which then brings them more attention and thus more money into his pockets. 
Now he's kind of in this whirlwind of conflicts. Now we have John Gluck caught up in this swirl of conflict of interest. I feel like this is the point in the story where he's kind of, you know, cornered with his back against the wall. You know, like, what, what does he do now? How does he get out of this? He knew he was untouchable. He knew that there was just, there was no paper trail. He didn't have to follow any of the rules. And he knew that the, the news media would basically print whatever he wanted them to print. So he didn't really have to do much other than go to an investigator's office when he got called in. So uh, Edward, Edwin Kilroe is part of a larger sweeping investigation of, of possibly fraudulent charities in the city, called Gluck into his office came in, basically just stonewalled him, just said, yeah, I'm kind of too busy to deal with this right now. I think all of these investigations would have seemed like nothing more than an, either an inconvenience or just yet another opportunity to say, oh my goodness, look, I'm just this nice little guy with the Christmas spirit trying to help kids and look at all this hassle I have to put up with. So Brian, I kind of want to know, because at the top of the show, you tease that the story involves spies and secret service agents. What were you talking about? What happened? Well, arguably, Gluck was impersonating a member of the Secret Service. This was part of a larger thing about Gluck's personality was that pretty much whenever you asked him who he was or what he did, you'd get a different answer. Oftentimes, they were just merely stretches of the truth, that he would be a famous tariff expert, an expert on newspapers, a, a charity efficiency expert. He would just make up titles for himself that were sort of true or true enough. Um, but then things started to take a turn where he was walking around saying, in a manner of speaking, that he was a member of the Secret Service. Now, what he was really saying was that he had created a group for himself known as the Citizenry Secret Service. And this was during the war years. And it was a volunteer organization where, you know, you pay a little fee or something like that. You become a member of the Citizenry Secret Service. And your job is uh, in sort of the same way that when you're a child, you get one of those badges that say that you're working with Smokey the Bear and you're going to help prevent forest fires. It was a ways for ordinary citizens to say, you know, I am committing to staying vigilant for things like spies or uh, any anti-American activity that I witness, uh, etc. What he was really doing, and most of what he's ever really doing, is building his mailing list and uh, for potential fundraising. The only problem is by creating this thing called the Citizenry Secret Service and kind of leaving it ambiguous uh, as to what people really were joining, and by saying he was a member of the Secret Service, uh, you can imagine that that went about as well as something like that could. This actually came across the desk of the Secret Service. And so an agent by the name of J.W. Kemp started looking into it. And as you might imagine, that it didn't really last very long. It got shut down very quickly. He told Gluck, you know, you, you can't do that. You can't just put another word in front of Secret Service, like Citizen Secret Service, and think that that's okay. So that all got shut down really, really quickly. Well, what about the whole spy thing? Well, around the end of the third season... Gluck decided all of a sudden he just didn't want to do the Santa Claus Association anymore. He stepped down as the president. He was still involved, but he handed it over to another person in the association. This didn't really sit too well with a lot of the volunteers. And so one of the people who was a high ranking volunteer, someone who had become a, an honorary vice president, ended up writing an anonymous letter. We don't know who it was. We know it was a woman, but we don't know who it was specifically saying that. 
John Gluck stepped down as the head of the Santa Claus Association, and I know why. And that reason is that John Gluck is, in fact, a German spy. And you need to look into that. And you know this guy from all the research that you've done. Was John Gluck a German spy? So getting accused of being a spy wasn't exactly rare. Um, But Gluck wasn't helping himself in any way. Because what he was also doing was uh, doing things like writing to the president, writing to Wilson, saying, hey, you know what? Um, I have a real line on the city's poor people because of my work as a charity um, or charitable organization head. He told them, because I'm so close to all these people, I could help report any wrongdoings I see because a lot of the people I'm working with are German descent. And, you know, let's face it, these poor people are probably the most likely to be spies. So he he was sort of positioning himself as being someone who's in a good position to help root out spies. But at the same time, he was sort of getting on the wrong people's radars. In addition to all of that, look, John himself is of German descent. Uh, He seems to go to Canada every so often, whatever that was supposed to mean, uh, and some other reasons besides. So he did end up getting investigated for being a German spy. Uh, It just didn't, nothing got turned up as a result. So what ended up happening to John Gluck? Did he get away with it? And what is it that he got away with? I mean, was it a crime at the end of the day? Or was this guy just kind of skirting the line? This is part of the reason he was able to succeed for so long is that it's really difficult to tell. I think at the end of the day, it's a mixture of someone who really started out maybe wanting to do good, but also saw it as an opportunity to make a name for himself. Then what he saw was just how easy it was to become famous, to get his name in the paper, to have people almost tripping over themselves to lend him office space and money. He really didn't even have to try all that hard to succeed. And it was really difficult for that not to go to his head. This was someone who was always striving for this kind of position. And all of a sudden he found it and it was almost happening quicker and in a larger capacity than he had ever expected. So it went to his head and he just really got into a, a, a rhythm of snapping his fingers and money would appear. And so I think he started out with good intentions, but it, it, it eventually corrupted him in, in some way. Oh, and, you know, he started out with good intentions. And I actually do believe that a lot of kids had really good Christmas those years because of what he did. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that he did an excellent thing for the the city, but it was really his propensity for landing himself in hot water and making trouble for himself and shooting his mouth off that really got him on the wrong people's radars. So there were investigations, like I said, with the district attorney's office. There were some other little investigations too. other people reporting that maybe he was doing uh, some kind of blackmail scheme uh, that had nothing to do with the Santa Claus Association, just with a friend of his. Um, people thought that he might be doing stuff like that. And again, he sort of was able to shrug off almost everything. Around the end of all of this was when a man named Bird Sim Kohler came, comes into the picture. Bert Sim Kohler was the welfare commissioner. He was kind of a Scrooge. He didn't really celebrate the holidays. He didn't really care for any of this. So none of John Gluck's charm worked on him at all. 
So he calls Gluck into his office, demands to see his bookkeeping. And again, Gluck used his media savvy. He said, well, you know, I'm really too busy. Uh, I'm really knee deep in the middle of the, of the Christmas season. So Kohler sends an auditor to Gluck's operations. Which it, they, they moved around every year. They were back at a hotel this year. And it didn't really look too busy to this guy. There were like five volunteers there. It, was, it had become kind of a shell of its former self. And so Gluck said, okay, well, here's what I would like to do. I'll provide my, my records. But he didn't provide them to Kohler. He provided them to the newspaper, again, really waging this battle in the court of public opinion. And what he released to the paper was not at all complete record keeping, basically just a, a little window into the records that painted everything as, as really looking rosy for Gluck. So Kohler couldn't shut him down. So he found the loophole. In its kind of stunning now that we look back to, to uh, realize that in 15 years, no one figured this out. That And it's sort of like how um, Al Capone, no one could really hang any crimes on him. He got taken down for tax evasion. When Kohler was looking into Gluck, he realized he didn't have any hard evidence of brazen fraud. There was nothing he could prosecute. So he said, well, then I won't prosecute. If the thing that's keeping this organization afloat is the steady stream of mail from the post office, the way I can take this guy down is to just take away his mail. So he went, he didn't try to fight Gluck anymore. He didn't try to go through the proper channels. He just went to the post office and said, look, this is what I've gathered in my investigation. Here's what others have gathered in their investigations. Even though we don't have enough hard evidence, let's put two and two together ourselves here. This guy is using this organization to, yes, do some good, but also to rake in a lot of money that nobody can seem to figure out where it's going. But we can put two and two together and kind of figure out where it's going. He cut John Gluck off at the source. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Brian. There is so much more to the story. And, and I know because you made a whole podcast series on it. What's it called? My Dear Santa, A True Crime Christmas Caper. And it's available under the normal podcast feed for Christmas Past, so it's not a separate podcast. If you look for Christmas Past, you'll see all the episodes. Well, thanks again, Brian. This has been super fascinating. And I just want to mention again, we just basically gave you a Reader's Digest version of this entire story. We barely scratched the surface, right, Brian? There is so much more. There is much, much more to this, uh, even more than what appears in the full miniseries. Uh, so I, I would recommend listening to the full miniseries and then probably also getting a copy of the book on which it's all based, which is called The Santa Claus Man by a, a really lovely guy by the name of Alex Palmer. And what's really interesting is that you released the entire series all at once, just like S-Town. And right now, my listeners could download and binge the whole thing, right? Yep, that's right. So the, again, they're under the podcast feed for Christmas Past. You'll see all six episodes were released on Thanksgiving Day. You can binge listen whenever you like. Creative Pass.